my name is Justin DeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, the long-awaited Russian Film History 101 episode. Are we going to talk about montage theory? Yes, we are going to talk about montage theory. Because we are talking about Savalod Pudovkin, uh, the number two silent-era Soviet filmmaker, the number two silent-era montage film theorist. And that will be the first and only time one of us will say his full name. <laughs> we will be calling him Podovkin from now on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Folks, there are many things in this world that I don't know a lot about. Uh, one of them is the cinema of the Soviet Union. So... This is an educational experience, well, for you, the listener, of course, uh, but also for us. Unless you already know a lot about it and you're just listening with your arms crossed, waiting to go, mm, that's not how you pronounce that name. You got that historical fact incorrect. That's right. If you are one of those people, stop listening right now. We are doing this episode for people who know even less than us. Um, but hopefully uh, we will be able to provide at least some insight for those people, because this week we watched two of Podovkin's most celebrated silent era films, Mother and Storm Over Asia. So we should start with why have you not watched a lot of classic early Russian cinema, Will? Yeah, that's a good question. It would seem kind of up my alley. You know, I'm interested in historical propagandistic kitsch as much as the next guy. Uh, you know, I've seen the major Eisenstein movies, but I, I think it's because I kind of know what I'm going to get out of them. I don't know if this is right to think this way, but it's like, I, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be, there's going to be the uprising and um, the, the factory workers are going to unite and they're going to take down the snarling guys who snarl. And do you not want to watch it? Because you know that just can't happen in real life. And even after the films were made, it was just corruption and terribleness as far far as the eye can see and you only believe like me in the capitalist system yes that's clearly it um no you know it, it's funny i've probably i've probably watched like as much um like nazi propaganda shit as i've watched soviet propaganda uh because it feels dusty that's why you don't want to watch it yeah yeah it feels dusty and like the nazi stuff feels like even even kitschier and more ridiculous. So it feels it's like, like a Mondo documentary. That's why you like to watch it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why. But the Soviet stuff, yeah, it it does feel a little bit dusty, and it also, I don't know, what I like in politics isn't necessarily what I like in art. You know, uh, uncomplicated, unambiguous depictions of um, the classes revolting. I think that there's also the issue of when you talk about academic film theory, oh man, Russia's right there in front of you. That's the first place anyone goes because the filmmakers themselves, the way that they talked, and if you're talking about someone like Eisenstein, they talked a lot about the, you know, way these films were constructed, the schematical way that you built a picture like this and presented it to the audience. But what I will say is whenever I do watch one of these great films by Podovkin or Eisenstein, like I do kind of get caught up in it. You know, I get surprised because these movies were made to hit you straight in the gut. They are, they were not really made like, like these filmmakers were of course, great thinkers and great theorists of the film form, but they didn't make these movies to be appreciated as only dusty museum pieces. They made them for the raw public to rouse emotions. And I think they still do succeed at that. Oh, I think Mother definitely does. This is the one that really like knocked my socks off when I watched it. Under 90 minutes. Mm, yeah, perfect. And it's also so immediate and in your face. 
Padovkin uh, doing some research into how he got to directing this picture, what I found interesting is that he is almost an amalgamation of everything that came before. So you have Eisenstein. You also have Kuleshov. That was Padovkin's teacher who had his own montage series. You have the American cinema of D.W. Griffith. That was also an influence on Padovkin. And then you have him putting it all together into something that is just as impactful as it was when it came out back in the day. So let's talk just a little bit about what Soviet montage theory is, because it is the Soviet Union's biggest contribution to cinema. Wait, let me get my David Bordwell book out so I can follow along. <laughs> let me go on wikipedia.com and type Soviet montage theory. But yeah, there, w- there was widespread agreement among the major Soviet filmmakers that montage was the most important aspect of cinema. Not individual shots, but the way that the shots are put together. There was some, I guess, minor disagreement among the major practitioners of how montage worked and what it was supposed to do. So Eisenstein, for instance, wrote extensively about the revolutionary potential of the image. If you collide shots together, if you create juxtapositions of two independent images, you manipulate the audience's emotions, you shock them out of their complacency. Um, That's the revolutionary potential. Padovkin, on the other hand, felt that images build upon one another to tell a story. So Padovkin, I think, is a little bit closer in the tradition of somebody like D.W. Griffith, who codified, didn't didn't create, but codified a lot of the ideas uh, that were happening in American cinema of like continuity editing, editing being used to tell a linear, easy to understand story. I mean, where Padovkin differs from Griffith is the idea that the editing should still be used to rouse and shock emotions. It, it should still be used to manipulate the audience and not just to provide the audience with an easy viewing experience. And Podovkin, he focused more on the characters in his movie, while Eisenstein was all about the group as a force, while Podovkin was more in the classical sense. He wanted to follow kind of simple archetypes and, you know, you can build on that character and create emotional weight as it goes along, but it wouldn't have the complexities of something like Shakespeare, because through that simplicity, you can build emotions and visuals that will reach a crescendo by the end of the film. He was actually against Eisenstein's more symbolic way to edit. For example, in an Eisenstein film, you have, you know, the crowds being massacred and then it cuts to a slaughterhouse, creating that juxtaposition while Pudovkin was like, uh, no, that's just too much. You're breaking any rhythm or involvement of an audience and you make them think, oh, did you get the reels wrong or something? Is that what's happening on screen? Pudovkin enjoyed symbolism in the most clearest sense, like, oh, the ice is breaking apart or there's a big storm. It's almost kind of kitschy in the way that he presents it. Right. Uh, What you're referring to is that very celebrated sequence at the end of Mother where the revolution is happening and it keeps cutting back and forth between the revolution happening and the ice thawing on the nearby lake. The ice symbolizing, like, I guess the complacency or the social structure dissolving. Those two things are also connected narratively. 
You know, they're not, it's not a non sequitur. Yeah, it's not ice somewhere else. We're going to come back to that ice later on for a ripped off scene from D.W. Griffiths way down east. Ah, Padovkin, the Quentin Tarantino of his day. Another typical example of Padovkin's approach is a scene in Mother where somebody is hiding beneath the floorboards and uh, another character is upstairs and it keeps cutting back and forth faster from uh, the character above the floorboards, her face to the floorboards, to the character, to the floorboards, creating tension that way. I mean, it sounds a bit ridiculous to describe now because you see stuff like this in movies all the time. Well, it's been codified. Like, that is how you tell a story like that. At the time, American films had something like 300 cuts on average, and Soviet films had 1,000 cuts on average. Uh, You know, that sounds like a Michael Bay movie now. Uh, I I don't mean this as a knock, but... Podovkin's legacy can be seen in the way that shots are constructed in a Michael Bay movie or in the way that shots are constructed in a Jean-Luc Godard movie. And like Michael Bay, every frame of a Podovkin film is just luscious, beautifully lit, almost like a painting. And that's, you know, the kind of feeling that he wanted to imbue into his audience. At the same time, Podovkin, like a lot of the Russian avant-garde filmmakers, was all about the realism of the face of an individual. The Russians didn't like the way that Hollywood would shoot faces, that kind of artificiality, tons of makeup. Podovkin loves to go in on the faces of people in the crowd, and you just get a snapshot of life just by spending that five seconds of close-up with them. And have I got a face for you? It's the face of Vera Baranov... Sorry, I'm I'm not going to pronounce the name well. <laughs> Baranovskaya, who it plays the title character in 1925's Mother. Uh, this is a film that takes place during the failed Russian Revolution of 1905. Uh, Pavel is a young factory worker who organizes a workers' strike. Pelagaya is his mother. She's apolitical. When her husband... Pavel's father dies during the ensuing riots uh, during the strike. Uh, we should point out that he dies as a strike breaker. In her grief and confusion and hoping to save her son from the same fate, she betrays her son, turns the son into the police. What she doesn't realize is that her son will be tried in a kangaroo court and sentenced to a life of hard labor in prison. And so while he's in prison, she's radicalized. She joins the uprising to break him out and all the other prisoners. What's curious about this film is that when you summarize it like that, her finding her own political will, it seems simple on paper, but you could take that out of the way the film plays out and it's just based on the emotions of what's happening. Like, everything the mother does, her radicalization is only influenced by the misery her son goes through and the opportunity to save her son by doing this radicalization. It's not like her son passes away and then she gets radicalized. She gets radicalized to bring these people up and to save her son in the process, which kind of clouds the movie's message, which don't tell any of the Russian secret police because they'll be very angry. It's a very powerful movie. It feels a bit strange to try to talk about it, you know, intellectually, quote unquote, because it is designed to punch you in the gut. And it works. The final scenes where she becomes fully radicalized and like she's holding the flag and the camera is closed in on her old weary face you know, it's really effective. I've heard people compare her performance to, for example, uh, Falconetti from The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, where it's this 
you know, where so much is conveyed just by her face. I read in Padovkin's writings that he didn't believe that actors really acted. He thought that the editing did the acting for them. Ah, real Michael Bay. Yeah, and or or Alfred Hitchcock, perhaps. Um, but I thought about that while watching this because I did wonder, like, how much of the effectiveness of her performance came from the editing of it because she gives a minimalist performance she's not that different from the end as she is from the beginning well the actor actually wanted to give a big performance because she was more classically trained and she did bourgeois cinema or provincial cinema and Podovkin wanted her to lower it to nothing and I think that a lot of the kind of success of her performance is they met sometimes halfway where she could do one or two kind of like emotional little moments in the scene that would highlight her humanity instead of the kind of like flatness that he wanted throughout he actually shot it in a flat way and then they went back and reshot it you know upping it a little which helped it immensely yeah i mean i think he was right the acting in this movie feels very contemporary and then we have storm over asia oh man two hours and 15 minutes but it's a good movie it's a film of stunning landscapes and haggard faces it's set well it begins in 1918 some opening title cards tell us about what has happened to the Mongols in the years since Genghis Khan. After the fall of Genghis Khan, the Mongols were reduced to being, you know, simple people, peasant people, and occupied by uh, such occupying forces as the British. Uh, now, this is a, a historical inaccuracy on the part of the film. Yeah, because they were occupied by Russia. <laughs> yeah. So they flat out made a fraudulent claim against the Brits here. I mean, the Brits did occupy a lot of places, so they are bad as well. Everyone's bad. Any white person is bad. Uh, I'm good, but I, I hear your point. But you're only good based on the blood of other people that have come before you, Will. Wow. wow. You're not wrong. The main plot involves a simple Mongolian peasant who is uh, cheated out of money when he sells a rare and beautiful fox fur to some British colonizers for too little. He gets in a tussle with them. That makes him a fugitive. And what follows is a story full of twists and turns, insane twists and turns. He ends up teaming with the Soviets to uh, lead a revolutionary guerrilla force against the British. He ends up becoming a prisoner of war by the British forces who eventually discover this amulet that he has that proves that he is a descendant of Genghis Khan. Yes, the Genghis Khan. So they want to set him up as the leader of a puppet government, but when he finally sees how terrible the British are, eventually murdering uh, one of his own people in front of him, he jumps into action in the last five minutes of the movie, which leads to a giant storm and a montage of sweeping horses. Yeah, this one didn't have the same emotional punch that I was hoping it would have after watching Mother. No, I agree that it's not quite as powerful as that, but I did really enjoy watching it. It's an incredible visual experience. All those shots of just vast landscapes. I mean, you know, really incredible. And there are a lot of interesting things that he does with editing throughout the movie for example halfway through he does a joke at the expense of the british colonizers where he keeps he keeps cutting to one guy who's like the main guy and you see shots of like close-up shots of him bathing and soaping up his horrible fat stomach and then it cuts to his wife like 
rubbing oils on her arms and it cuts to them, you know, putting crowns on their heads, you know, talking about how these people are, you know, on their way to go meet with the poor people. Or intercutting between the rich people getting ready and then the religious people also doing their very Baroque ceremonies. So Podovkin is trying to draw the parallel of like, the religious leaders that are in power are just as bad as the rich bourgeoisie who are the occupying forces. This is a film that I know is one of Martin Scorsese's favorites because I've heard him say he just likes to throw it on if he wants to, you know, take in the grandeur. And watching some of the more documentary uh, segments of this film where you see the Buddhists go through some of their ceremonies, you go, oh yeah, now I see why old Marty's like, I want to make Kundun. I love all of this iconography. Yeah, it does have a documentary. It has a bit of a Nanook of the North quality to it where you're not quite sure where the documentary ends and the movie itself begins. Which Russian critics supposedly did not like. They thought that Podovkin was too sympathetic when it came to the Buddhists and that he should have been more, you know anti-religion this film was not popular when it came out in russia but it was popular internationally you took a look at some of his later movies because i know that eisenstein eventually fell out of favor with stalin i know that ivan the terrible was received as a thinly veiled attack on stalin and he suffered some consequences for that i don't think a similar fate befell podovkin despite the fact that podovkin's movies were focused on individuals rather than the masses, it seems that he more or less stayed in the favor of the government for the rest of his life, right? Oh, yeah. Except when you look at his filmography, there's only three or four movies that people ever watch. You look on Letterboxd, anything after The the Deserter, it almost has no reviews because they're just not available. The Deserter was his first official sound film. And like a lot of the avant-garde filmmakers, they were like, ah, sound, we don't need it. And Eisenstein and Podovkin signed like a treaty about the theory of sound, where the sound in a picture has to be counter to what you're seeing on screen, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, audiences love that. <laughs> That's a very Godardian idea, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. But he kept being awarded the Order of Lenin and stuff like that. And once he finally got into just conventional sound stuff, they were all biographies of like great Russian army generals. I watched a part of the last film he, that he released the return of Vasily Bordenikov. And you have those luscious Podovkin visuals, but it's just very staid. And to use that word we used before, dusty. Like, almost like he didn't want to step on any toes at this point of his filmmaking career. There's no more revolutions that are happening on screen. There's more just like towing a line, which is why that nobody watches these films. I had to watch that film subtitled in French because I couldn't find any version that was subtitled in English, which is crazy when you consider that he is probably the second most popular, you know, classical Russian director after Eisenstein. Yeah, I think it just goes to show you that oftentimes movies made under what's the word I'm looking for? Authoritarian regimes. <laughs> yeah, don't turn out too good. Don't turn out too good. <laughs> so and I think that what I learned through this episode is that Mother is a great movie that I would happily recommend to anyone who wants to check out the avant-garde of Russian cinema because it has all of the stuff that you read in your textbooks, but because it's so present and it's short, just like the Battleship Potemkin, it's something that's very easy to digest in a way that you don't need to like reset your expectations or anything like that. It will work the way it was meant to work. Like by the end of Mother, like I was getting emotional of how it was wrapping up. Yeah, when I saw that mother holding that flag, looking proud, totally radicalized, it made me think of me doing a tweet. <laughs> 
yes, baby Yoda should die. <laughs> and just like mother, you went down for that tweet. <laughs> I know. I know. Justin, do we have any letters this week? Why, yes, we do have letters, Will. Uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from loyal listener Kay Parrington. He goes, hey, Justin and Will. Thanks for your insightful discussion on Wakefield Pool. It was great to hear two people give him the respect he deserves, which is though happening more than it used to, I think at least in part due to Evan Pershell's recent archive work, as can be seen in the wonderful movie Ask Anybody, is still not happening enough. Vintage gay porn renaissance is one step closer to total cultural domination. By the way, Evan has a podcast now that I haven't listened to, but it's called Ask Anybody, where like, he made this experimental film that's full of footage from many different gay porn films over the years. And in this podcast, he does an episode about every single one of them where he talks about them. And the first one is about Take One, the Wakefield Pool film. Um, and I haven't heard the podcast yet, but I'm very eager to. It sounds great. I did not even know this podcast existed. I'm adding it now to my playlist. Ask anybody, it's called. I believe Evan may uh, have at some point listened to this podcast. Oh, in I, which case, I hope so. I hope he's listening now. The letter continues, and there's so many auteurs left to dive into. May I suggest Fred Halstead, the Yang to Pool's Ying? Are you familiar with this man? Uh, I am familiar. He made L.A. Plays Itself, which of course is where the documentary Los Angeles Plays Itself got its name from. Yeah. Uh, Halstead's movies, I think, are known for being much rougher than Wakefield Pools are. And the letter still continues. Justin talked about his love of using his projector for rogue screenings. I like to second that. A projector makes any screening feel bigger and more professional. I occasionally program and introduce genre film screenings. And the way I got this gig was through hosting a down-low film club out of my living room, showing everything from horror pornography. Oh, you are a brave man, Mr. Parrington. <laughs> To return to Oz with 20 people stuffed uncomfortably onto couches and beanbags. I'm sure that the only reason I got a decent amount of people to show up was because the projector made it feel like it was almost like a real movie theater. Do either of you have any particular fond memories of backyards or other improvised theater viewing experiences? Cheers, Kai. All right, Will, I'm setting you up for your Cineforum talks. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, the Cineforum took place in Reg Hart's living room, not in his backyard. But yes, Reg Hart is a peculiar man who lives in Toronto who has a movie theater in his living room and he has you know battled with the bylaw people over the years to you know classify it as a club like you're not allowed to run a business out of your private residence but he's figured out various loopholes to do it over the years and if you live in Toronto or you've ever been to Toronto you would have seen posters all over town plastered on every bulletin board advertising his screenings where he shows like you know banned cartoons and Nosferatu set to the music of Radiohead I remember first visiting Toronto when I was in college uh, to see a friend who lived here and seeing those posters and being like wow this is crazy everything gets shown here and now I can walk out and see that same poster and be like I can't believe this is still going on back in the day when I was uh, really young he would show movies on film he would show like 16 millimeter prints of this stuff. Now he just shows like DVDs and torrents, basically. It's not the same. And he's had many other legal problems. Uh, if you search his name, I'm sure they will come up. Please don't search his name. I believe he was uh, putting posters up recently uh, that went along the lines of, if Stanley Kubrick can make Lolita, why is it a problem for what I do? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Ugh, not good. Um, But... Other, like, good outdoor backyard experiences, uh, Justin and I were both uh, members of a secret film society in Toronto, like, 10 years ago called 
um what was it called fantascope fantascope i didn't attend that many screenings though but i remember they held like a backyard screening a screening in somebody's backyard of cannonball starring john carradine the new world pictures film oh yeah their attempt to uh get that death race 2000 success dick miller has a big role in cannonball he does yeah i remember seeing that projected on film in somebody's backyard and having a really good time the problem with clubs like that is they often feel very exclusive and i'm like i don't know how i get into this and i'm here and it feels like i shouldn't be uh there was a place called trash palace in toronto and that was a lot of fun because uh, a guy named Stacy Case had a printing shop and it was like this massive basement and they would show films on 16 millimeter along with like cereals and cartoons and they'd serve popcorn. It was a blast. I remember attending the first time and Stacy was like, hey man, thanks for coming. And he didn't even know who I was. It made me feel welcome because I didn't know anybody that was there. I was by myself. Oh, I mean, that's great to hear because I remember the first time I went to that, I went to see Gorilla at Large with I think Raymond Burr and I definitely felt like and it's my fault it's not their fault but i definitely felt like i was trespassing on something some of the backyard screenings i've had that are memorable experiences are the ones that go badly any screenings that you have like 10 15 people and nobody likes the movie john woo's bullet in the head is an example or steven spielberg's 1941 those did not go over well as people (laughs) even though i warned them bullet in the head was an interesting one and i think it's people's expectations i had not calibrated them correctly and they were not ready for how depressing it ended up being well thank you for the letter and if you dear listener would like us to answer your questions or have any comments feel free to contact us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com what are we doing for our patreon this week will this week we are revisiting paul schrader i just watched patty hurst and i wanted to talk to justin about it so we talk about everybody's favorite old ornery facebook poster oh my god those facebook posts they're just hair raising (laughs) and this week a new gold ninja video has been put up for pre-order and this is the best one yet i think it's definitely the biggest one this is one that i've had in like my back pocket for like i think six months slowly putting it together it's called the ninja vortex a godfrey ho and friends treasury collection and essentially godfrey ho is such an unknowable filmmaker but i wanted to challenge myself if i could put together a box set of his movies we may have some listeners who don't know who godfrey ho is godfrey ho Hong Kong filmmaker who made 80 movies, 90 movies. Most of them were repurposed from other movies. They were cut and paste films where he would like buy a movie from the Philippines or South Korea or Hong Kong. And it would be like an hour of that. And then half an hour of uh, crazy footage of actors that he found on the street, basically being ninjas. And half of his movies have the word ninja in the title. He has been called the Ed Wood of Hong Kong. Uh, but don't listen to that. Uh, he's he's a great filmmaker. And so the way that I approach this set is that it's three Blu-rays and I broke it up between the collaborators that work with Godfrey O. So first disc, pure Godfrey. Ninja Terminator, one of the most famous ninja films. Super fun. Highly recommend it. The Dragon, the Hero, a film that Godfrey Ho directed all of the Paris Killers. Godfrey Ho also directed all of it. His first feature film shot guerrilla style on the streets of Paris. There's a Kung Fu fight on the Eiffel Tower that they filmed without any permission. And then on the second disc, we have Godfrey Ho's producer, Joseph Fly. I put Golden Queen's Commando, an amazing film from the director of 
fantasy mission for C. Jackie Chan film, Chu Yang Pig. You've heard of us talk about him before. So I have that film, which is essentially a proto-fantasy mission force, but if it was all women. I have the film that that director shot that same year with the entire same cast called Pink Force Commando. I also have Kickboxer King, which is after the ninjas dried up after 10 years. IFD company, Joseph Lai and Godfrey Ho ended up making kickboxing films. And this one is great because the source movie that they cannibalized for it is a Thai action film from the action choreographer of Unkbak and the director of Born to Fight. You have never seen more bone-breaking stunts on film than you will see in Kickboxer King. And finally, oh my god, I'm just losing my breath as I'm talking about this. <laughs> we have a disc dedicated to Thomas Tang, who was the other producer that Godfrey Ho worked with. And what's amazing about these filmmakers is that we did a Godfrey Ho episode on the Import Cinema Club. We got like half of the stuff wrong as I like deep dived into it because everything you know on the internet about these people is a lie. <laughs> and finally, the last disc has The Super Ninja, which is an amazing Taiwanese ninja film, a pure like 100% no Godfrey Ho footage. You have Invincible Obsessed Fighter, a South Korean Jackie Chan ripoff film. Again, amazing. I love it. And Crocodile Fury, which is the most insane monster attack movie that has the highest body count I've ever seen in a monster attack film, but also has new footage of hopping vampires and white guys fighting them. And the original source movie for real longtime listeners is directed by the Thai director of Hanu Man and the Five Riders. And I didn't even get into the special features that are on these discs. Me and Will did a commentary track. That's right. We did it on The Dragon, The Hero, which is a Bruceploitation movie starring Dragon Lee. And me and my other podcast, No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, did a po uh, commentary on Ninja Terminator. Me and Alex Chung did one on The Super Ninja. And me and Carlo of the Back Row Cinema Blog, who also did the commentary with me on Thundering Mantis, did one on Golden Queen's Commando, which is a really fun one, too, because we go into our top 10 favorite Girls with Guns movies. And I also did six featurettes on all of the filmmakers that were involved in these sets. I do one that's a primer to Godfrey Ho films, which is about 10 minutes long. I do one on Godfrey Ho. I do one on Joseph Lai. I do one on Thomas Tang. I even do one on Betty Chan, who is someone that nobody knows anything about, but is supposedly the producer on all of these pictures. There is an 85-minute trailer reel of just movies that were released by IFD and Filmark that have Ninja in the title. I would not include it on the trailer reel if the Ninja was not in the title, and I got 85 minutes of it. And finally, there's a booklet, there's liner notes. Yeah, it continues. Oh, also, if you order now, and there's only like, I don't know, 20 left, so if you want it, we're reprinting The Dragon Lives Again. Our first release, which I only discovered today, was almost a year ago. We released it last July, 2019. And people have been asking for this. And finally, I'm doing 125 copies, but you gotta buy Ninja Vortex. It comes in a two-pack. And also, you'll remember that last year we put it out as a limited edition. And this release differs. It doesn't have the liner notes. It doesn't have the lobby cards. It's a somewhat stripped-down release, but it has the commentary track and the feature apps. Yeah, it has. The disc is exactly the same. And it does have new original art by Andrew Barr, which if you haven't seen it, just check it out on my Twitter because it's amazing. <laughs> So yeah, so that's Godfrey Ho, um, Ninja Vortex set. Uh, I need a nap now. But 
It's $30 if you want Dragon Lives Again and Ninja Vortex. It's $20 if you just want Ninja Vortex. And if you're new to this podcast or Gold Ninja Video, these are not new transfers. These are all from like gray market, public domain DVDs. And I've tried to find the best version that I could. I actually got permission from a guy that made a um, fan remaster of Ninja Terminator. He's like, oh yeah, you can use my transfer. So that's what we use for the main film. Ninja Terminator actually comes in two versions, the 16 by nine version and the 235 version because wow. they have different picture qualities. <laughs> I killed myself making this release. Please buy it. I would really appreciate it. You would be a madman if you didn't buy this. Uh, the discs have uh, Richard Harrison's face from the cover. And I actually got different ninja headbands and different colors for each disc, depending on who it is. So yeah, if you have any interest in Godfrey Ho, it's 20 bucks. It's not that much. Please. They're going to sell out, too. So what are we doing next week? Next week, Robin Williams. That's right. The king of comedy himself. Mork from Ork. Why are we doing Robin Williams? Because Robin Williams is, I think, a fascinating actor. We almost slipped him into when we did serious comedians. But I think that his body of work, there's more there that we could explore. I mean, Robin Williams in Me and Will's life was a man of almost Jim Carrey stature at one point. Oh, yeah. And he's somebody who has made a number of uh, a number of good movies, but whose bad movies are vast and rich and, and like just incredibly bad. And he was a man of enormous talent whose talent was so often used for evil. <laughs> yeah. So we'll be watching uh, Jack uh patch adams <laughs> oh, oh no will's oh waving his hands okay sorry we won't do that instead we'll watch mrs doubtfire a movie that i mean i like wore down that vhs watching it so much and i don't understand why <laughs> like was that the only vhs i had i've heard the story from like a lot of people though like just hearing dude looks like a lady just brought a smile to my face every time it would play <laughs> I had a similar experience with that film. So we'll be watching that. And what were the other ones that you wanted us to check out? Well, I was thinking maybe we should watch Good Morning Vietnam because it's, you know, one of the quintessential Williams joints. And uh, I don't know. Should we watch World's Greatest Dad? Yeah, I think that's probably one of his last great movies and arguably one of his greatest dramatic performances because he gets to do a bunch of different levels in it and we get to talk about our man bobcat goldway so i'm very excited about that you know what we are undefeated wakefield pool podolfkin robin williams there's nobody else <laughs> are you gonna say that every week now it's just incredible all right so until next week my name's justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening It's amazing the world we live in. You know, I have a Roku now and this Roku thing is the best thing I've ever had. And I'm going to act like I'm like planting a flag on the moon here, discovering something that everybody already knows. But yeah, you're like a certain uh, critic that shall remain unnamed. Who's like, man, you can put subtitles on movies now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, check out the latest issue of CinemaScope for that. Um, but I searched, okay, what uh, Three Stooges movies can I find on Roku? And I found uh, an easy link to watch the Three Stooges go around the world in a daze from 1963. One of the later period, one of the Curly Joe era Three Stooges movies. And, you know, I could have watched this movie on a VHS rip on YouTube, but I wanted to respect the filmmaker's vision. So I instead paid $4.99 to watch it in HD on Google Play. <laughs> 
Oh, man, there is like an alarm that went off somewhere, like Three Stooges HQ, where people are like, oh my God, somebody bought this movie and paid $5 for well, it. Well, you know, somebody mastered it. Somebody created an HD transfer of the Three Stooges go around the world in a daze, and I supported it, and I'm proud. I'm shocked there's not like a box set of the Curly Joe era of all the movies they made that were directed by like Moe's um, son-in-law. Yeah, Norman Maurer. I mean, if there is one, I don't have it. Uh, so yeah, I watched it. This is one that I saw as a kid. It's the Three Stooges are butlers for Phileas Fogg the Third, who wants to recreate his grandfather's uh, voyage around the world. And you know, it's it's one of those movies where like they go to Tokyo, they go to Hon- they go to Singapore, they go to Turkey, but it's all obviously just like a park in Los Angeles, <laughs> yeah, just a back lot somewhere. <laughs> and like, there's a whole section of the movie where like they're in Japan and Curly Joe like goes in a match with a sumo wrestler it's that approximate level of comedy um it was like really not funny but it was just (laughs) it was just great to hang out with the boys you know and they're so old oh my god oh man curly joe against a sumo wrestler like that makes me nervous i don't want him to get hurt or anything (laughs) i mean curly joe he looks so old and he doesn't he doesn't look well and it's a it's a movie that's also like built out of like old three stooges routines so there's a there's a curly short where when larry played violin when he played pop goes the weasel it would turn curly into a boxer like a like a fighting machine does he like come out of his lethargy like 10 percent when he plays pop goes the weasel yeah making him do curly bits oh. just doesn't <laughs> do any favors for him can you imagine all of the kids that like were watching the three stooges in syndication when they came back like in the late 50s and then that caused the three stooges to go on tour and then they got there and they're like they're so old what's wrong with curly he doesn't look right because <laughs> i've been reading a uh, raised eyebrows oh i love that book so if people don't know this was a book that it was a guy that worked for groucho marx near the end of his life and was great about it is that it is from the perspective of a fan who's just like realizing that groucho you know he's an old man there's like nothing that he can do about that and around groucho are all these people that groucho worked with who are slowly dying one by one as the reaper slowly coming from groucho as well it's so good yeah he's talking about like having lunch with george burns or lucille ball all these old people who i mean groucho hated lucille ball because did you hear what happened at the emmys lucille ball like wouldn't let Groucho read the nominees and she's like oh you can read the winner and when the winner came down she like knocked him out of the way and Groucho afterwards was like I think she was drunk and also it's an amazing story of this woman named Erin Fleming who was Groucho's I guess secretary slash girlfriend who seems to have been a little bit unwell and was basically using Groucho as a way into Hollywood. And so all of these like cool with it, young celebrities like Elliot Gould and Bud Court are showing up basically as Aaron Fleming's new friends because they want to hang out with Groucho. Aaron Fleming's is the woman that has sex in the car in everything you wanted to know about sex, the Woody Allen film. And she supposedly was going to have a big role in Woody Allen's love and death, but she like refused to do what Woody had written. She's like, no, it should be this way instead. So he's like, all right, I'm going to get somebody else. She wanted it to be that her character ends up being a mother in the film, which if you know who the character is, it like, it makes no sense at all. (laughs) Uh, Raised eyebrows. If you have any interest in Groucho Marx and you haven't read this book, you have to check it out. It was going to be 
adapted into movie form by Rob Zombie at one point. Which could have been interesting. It would have been interesting to see how how heavily he would have leaned into the grotesque side of this story. But it's not that grotesque, if you know what I mean. Like, when I heard that he was doing it, I thought that, like, Groucho just lived in his trash and, like, he couldn't take care of himself. But Groucho was pretty, you know, he was taking care of right up until the end of his life. One of the great things about the book is that Groucho really lives in it. It's full of, like... This author, Steve Stolier, was making notes the whole time. So it's full of very vivid stories of him. It's full of all the jokes he was making, all the things he was saying at the time. It's a great, it's like the gospel of Groucho. Yeah, like Groucho can't turn off. He just can't. He's always throwing one-liners. And the author is like, yep, that's why he and his son don't get along. He was just a little too mean with some (laughs) their significant others. And you're like, oh, man. The only thing is that... Uh, the Groucho book would have broken the rule of uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski when it comes to making a biopic, which is don't do it through the perspective of a newcomer into things. People just want to know about the person. So just make it about the person. The My Week with Marilyn. Exactly. Syndrome. Or me and Orson Welles. 